Unique Features of the Gospels, Matthew, Part 2. Matthew's Gospel is not in chronological order. It is referred to as the didactic, or instructive Gospel, and is like a mosaic of the Master's teachings, given in different places and at different times, but collected together and arranged to show the Lord as the Master Teacher, one of whom it would be recorded that the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Matthew's Gospel is split into six groups. Each group consists of a narrative followed by a discourse, and each discourse ends with the phrase, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, or something equivalent, with the exception of the denunciation of the Pharisees in chapter 23. The breakup of these groups is as follows. Chapter 3 to 7 is the discourse, the manifesto of the king. Chapters 8 to 10, we have the discourse, the charge, the 12. Chapters 11 to 13, the discourse, the parables of the kingdom. Chapters 14 to 18, the discourse, the teaching on greatness and forgiveness. Chapters 19 to 23 is the discourse on the denunciation of the Pharisees. Chapters 24 to 25 is the discourse of the Olivet Prophecy. Number one, the Manifesto of the King. It outlines the fundamental principles to guide the Master's disciple in their conduct. It is the mission statement of those who would be citizens of the Kingdom of Heaven, describing the character of the King's servants, the moral law they follow, the religious worship they engage in, the need for an undivided focus on the one they serve, their relationship to the material things of the world, and their relationship to others. The manifesto concludes, showing that we have only two choices, the broad way or the narrow way, to bring forth evil fruit or good fruit, a firm foundation on God's word, or the shifting sands of man's reasoning. Charge the Twelve As the discourse on the Mount refers to disciples in their private capacity, this charge refers to them in the capacity of representing Christ to the world. In it, Christ shows the widespread need for their service, their appointed task, and the suffering that would result. He provides encouragement that points to the reward for the sacrifices they would be called to make. The parables of the kingdom will be discussed in the next section. The teaching on greatness and forgiveness is a section that was also given to the twelve. Recent events had disclosed the moral weakness of those men, disloyal, vain ambition and jealousy. Therefore, in view of his approaching death, resurrection and ascension, the Lord withdrew from preaching to the nation in order to focus on teaching and training the men who would continue this work after his departure. That teaching is just as relevant to us now as it was to them then. The Denunciation of the Pharisees The Lord launches into a scathing attack on the much-respected, legalistic and hypocritical religious rulers. He condemns them for ostentatious behaviour. All their works they do for to be seen of men. Their hypocrisy, for they say and do not, and their pride and love of preeminence. Number six, the Olivet Prophecy. The final discourse Matthew records provided a warning of what was to come upon the nation in AD 70, and has relevance to our day as we are warned what to expect in the last days before our Lord returns, and instructs us on how we should spend our time preparing. Between the first and second discourses, we have ten miracles recorded in chapters eight and nine. Obviously, These were not performed directly one after the other, but rather are grouped together here by Matthew to show the power and authority of the Messiah. In chapters 5 to 7, we have the proclamation of the king, and in chapters 8 to 9, we have his credentials. In one, we have his teaching. In the other, we have his touch. It's in this block of miracles that Matthew chose to quote Isaiah 53 verse 4 and show its application to the Lord. 
that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. And so the picture is painted of the Messiah, who came with compassion, the one whom Isaiah wrote, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Perhaps Matthew was trying to direct his Jewish readers' minds back to Isaiah 53 and show its fulfilment in the sacrifice of Jesus of Nazareth. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearer is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. The Jewish society was a very oral society. The training and development of memory formed an essential part of Jewish education. It was important to be able to memorise things and thus be able to think over them without requiring the written material in front of them. Matthew's Gospel is very structured, thus making its content the easiest of the Gospels to remember. Matthew has a lot to say about the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, which occurs 33 times in his Gospel and is a phrase exclusively used by him. He emphasises that we must be citizens of this kingdom now by the way in which we live our lives. As we saw above, chapters 5-7 to provide a guide for how to be citizens of this kingdom. In chapter 13, we have eight parables presented to us with a fascinating structure. The subject of these eight parables is the kingdom of heaven. Seven of the eight commence with the kingdom of heaven is like unto. The following is a list of the parables. We have four parables in public. The sower, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed and the leaven and the meal. We have four parables about being in private, the hid treasure the goodly pearl, the fishnet, and the householder. The parable of the sower introduces the section, and the parable of the householder concludes the section. The structure of the parables is arranged in a way which is called inverted parallelism, where we have the sower, the key of introducing, anticipative, and beginning, followed by the tares, the central section being the mustard seed, the leaven, the hid treasure, and the goodly pearl, the fishnet, and following that, and then the householder, the key, uh, concluding reflective. If we compare the parable of the tares and the parable of the fishnet, then we see some common elements coming out. The separation of the good from the bad and the final outcome for both groups. Similarities can also be seen with between the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, and the parables of the hid treasure and the goodly pearl. The tares, mustard seed and leaven, all speak of starting with something, and it increasing or growing while the hid treasure, goodly pearl, and fishnet all speak of starting out with much and ending up with less, but of more value. The final parable in the series is as follows. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. This is turned the octave parable in the series. As in musical harmony, the octave is the complement of the first note of the scale, and so this eighth parable answers to the first. The sower tells of the reception of what is good, and the householder tells of the impartation of the good which has been received. The one represents the divine aspect from God to man, and the other presents the human aspect from man to man. The lesson contained in it for us is that God has given us his word, and it is up to us to search it out and to store up those hid treasures contained within, that we might bring them forth to share with others, and so instruct and encourage each other. As mentioned earlier, all parables unique to Matthew deal with the king and his kingdom. The following parables 
show different aspects of service done for the king. Here are the parables unique to Matthew. The unmerciful servant in chapter 18. This parable graphically shows the hatefulness of an unforgiving spirit. It highlights to us the magnitude of our need for forgiveness before God, and thus the need to extend mercy toward others. It demonstrates that the magnitude of God's mercy is the measure of his wrath. The Labourers in the Vineyard, chapter 20. This parable shows that not everyone who is casually employed will be selected as a permanent servant by the owner of the vineyard. It also highlights the importance of motive. God attaches importance not so much to the work done as to the spirit in which it is done. Two sons called to work in chapter 21. The context of this parable is that the chief priests and elders have just been exposed for their insincerity and inconsistency. This is shown to be a contrast to John the Baptist. By saying, I go, sir, they agreed with John's general aim, but by not going, they disapproved of his moral conviction and so declined to follow him. On the other hand, the publicans and sinners initially had no regard for John, but eventually repented and changed their way of life. One would be granted entrance into the kingdom, the other would not. The marriage of the king's son. This is really two parables from chapter 22. The parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the wedding garment. The first speaks of the religious leaders who despised and rejected the invitation. The second speaks of those who accept the invitation, but do not comply with the conditions. The king's benefits are based on his conditions. The ten virgins in chapter 25 illustrates the need for watchfulness, particularly showing the need for wisdom. Both this and the following parable are a warning of the judgment to come on those who had done nothing to prepare for the king. The talents, also in chapter 25, is a parable that shows the need of being active in the king's service, constructively using what we've been given. It highlights the aspect of being faithful with our king's goods and provides a warning for those who fail to be actively working to increase the king's assets. There are only three miracles unique to Matthew's Gospel. The healing of two blind men in chapter 9, the deliverance of the dumb demoniac in chapter 9, and the tribute money in the mouth of the fish in chapter 17. Matthew concludes his Gospel by recording the charge that the king gave to his servants. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, and with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The king sends forth his ambassadors to instruct all who will hear to become his subjects. All prospective members of this royal family must be inducted through the waters of baptism. Matthew's gospel commences with the birth of one who is called Emmanuel, God with us. It concludes with the Lord's ascension into heaven and the assurance that he would be with them always. For the Jewish mind, and for us also, Matthew's Gospel has made abundantly clear that this Jesus of Nazareth, whose advent was heralded by the prophets of old, was indeed their promised Messiah. Truly he is the greatest son of David, promised by the Father himself, and even now he awaits his signal to set up the everlasting kingdom of his father. Then shall Israel, long dispersed, mourning seek the Lord their God. 
Look on him whom once they pierced, own and kiss the chastening rod. Then all Israel shall be saved, war and tumult then shall cease, while the greater son of David rules a conquered world in peace.